Listeners, welcome to today's exciting and truly thought-provoking episode of the Business of Wellness. I am your host, Jacqueline London, registered dietitian, nutrition consultant, and author. I am thrilled to bring you this conversation with my friend and fellow registered dietitian, Rachel Engelhart. Rachel and I worked together at Mount Sinai Hospital way too long ago. I mean, <laughs> I wish we worked together now, but I... I absolutely adore her and just think her perspective on all of the current hot topics in nutrition and health is just hugely impactful and really important. So I cannot wait to share this conversation with you. Just to give you a little bit more about Rachel, she, as well as being a dietitian, she has a master of arts in counseling for mental health and wellness from NYU. And she currently works as a licensed professional counselor, as well as an RD. She's also a certified intuitive eating counselor using a non-diet health at every size approach. She works with um, a population that is struggling with with the recovery from disordered eating, body image, and self-esteem issues, um, and those who are not struggling, but those who are seeking her counsel. So this is a fantastic conversation. What we really got into detail on two huge topics in the field of dietetics, one being semaglutide use, and the second being the recent Washington Post article, which by the time this episode comes out will be almost a week old, but cannot wait to hear what you think about our conversation, about this episode, about either of those two topics. Please feel free to read out at Jacqueline London RD across social media platforms, of course, and at Jacqueline London on TikTok. And I cannot wait to hear what you think about this episode. Get in touch. Let me know what you think. Please feel free to leave a five-star rating and a review, and I will see you on the other side. Enjoy. I'm just laughing because I can't. Rach, welcome. Welcome to the business of wellness. What a Thank thrill. I could you. really Thank talk you. to you for eight years. Rachel and I have already been talking for about a half an hour. <laughs> if we could keep going. We could keep going. Tell, tell us about you. Where does this podcast recording find you? Where are you right now? What are you doing? Tell us about you. Well, I am on my lovely couch in <laughs> sunny Washington, D.C. I'm a registered dietitian, a licensed professional counselor, and a certified intuitive eating counselor. And I just love helping people heal their relationship with food and recover from eating disorders. And I feel so lucky that I get to do this for a living. Well, I feel so lucky that you get to do this for a living and that I get to talk to you about it because I feel like, like Rachel is truly the beacon of knowledge for me. I feel like I have been coming to you for, with questions and also just for general advice since probably 2010. It's I mean, been a while. It's been a while. Bit of time. I mean, that's a beautiful yeah. thing, right? It is. It really is. a decade together of togetherness, except we had, we spent so much of this time catching up because we have not seen each other in far too long, too long, way too long. Now we have so many things. We have so many topics to cover, but we really have to start with the old elephant in the room, which is, which is Ozempic, the Ozempic of it all. And I'm calling it Ozempic is the shorthand here because we all know it's many things. It's semaglutide, it's GLP-1 agonists. It's uh, the class of medication that we are all at this point so familiar with because it's become basically a household name. I need to hear from you about your take on the rise in the prescription of these medications for weight loss. Let's start with that. And then we'll get into some other topics on it. Sure. So to preface this, I come from an every health health at every size framework. Um, And so I really celebrate body diversity and I I just believe all bodies are good bodies and deserve respect and care. And I also believe in body autonomy and that people 
should make choices that work for them. And I could never know the experience of living in someone else's body. So I have a lot of feelings. I, um, I have a lot of concerns Mm. and I, I just think it's a, I think this is a really complicated topic. Yeah, it really is. And there's so many nuances to this topic and it's not the first time that we've talked about it on this podcast before, but I feel like getting your perspective, particularly as a haze informed practitioner is so important because I think you have a really nuanced take on this beyond what, what you just mentioned, which is that, um, you know, I think there's just so much about this that gets out there. And there's I, like, I have really sensed, and I don't know if you feel this too, Rach, that there's like a really negative media narrative around it. Like there's like yeah. this push to sort of drive people away from it, which is kind of like having this effect of shaming people who are using the medication yes. and who might be doing really well on it and tolerating it really well and doing and feeling like it's really helping them. And then on the flip side, I just can only imagine that in, you know, when we were just having a conversation about healthcare in general and, and providers in general and the state of medical care in the U S at the moment, it just really just seems like it's becoming increasingly more of a mess. And what really worries me is the idea of someone going to see a provider and speaking to them about it and someone just writing a script and and being like, here you go. That also concerns me just as much. What has been your experience with this and working with providers and with patients? Yeah. Beyond. I really agree with you. Like the, the, oh yeah, just take Ozempic and and be on your way is really, really concerning. I mean, I've had a lot of experiences and I also, like, I was just listening to a podcast that came out in November and she was like the podcast person was like, well, there's this new medication called Ozempic. And it's so funny to think about a time when like we were just hearing about it, but I actually had one of those clients who was going on it just as it was like this medication called Ozempic that I had never heard of. And, you know, she landed herself in the hospital. Like she did not Mm -hmm. tolerate it well. She's no longer on it. It was like, she thought she was having a heart attack. It had gave her really bad um, heartburn. And it was, if you've ever had heartburn, like, I feel like I've definitely oh. had heartburn and been like, oh my God, I'm having a heart attack. And then it turns out it's just, it's heartburn, but it's not just heartburn. <laughs> it's rather uncomfortable. Um, but, but yes, it's, I feel, I feel like there is a real misuse of it in a lot of ways and that it's, it's handed out so freely. And yet, I say that like from my clinical perspective, I think the really, the thing I have the hardest part with is all the judgment. I really think that. I think people feel judged for taking it. People feel judged if they're in a larger body. I yeah. I don't blame anyone for feeling like it's the thing that they need to be taking because our society has such unkind standards. And so I feel like it, it almost feels like for so many people, like you can't win. And I... I really, I just feel for anyone who's contending with this topic. Totally. I mean, I wonder, especially like you mentioned the sort of like social implication. And I, I always wonder about this and I feel like because we are friends, because I trust your opinion and value your clinical experience so much, I feel like I need to ask you this because I, I feel like online, I see a lot of, um, a lot of the following statement from, from a lot of people who would call themselves um, haze practitioners or, okay. or weight inclusive practitioners, which is weight is not, or, or obesity is not a disease. And yet on the flip side of that, I feel like there are a lot of people 
in the obesity medicine space that would strongly disagree with that statement, like that obesity is its own disease. I feel conflicted on this just as much, right? Because I also wonder to what extent is obesity as a disease an insurance thing? That bugs me too, right? Because I remember when we were writing clinical charts, it's like, to what extent is obesity considered its own disease for simply the insurance of it all? Yeah. And to what extent is it its own disease from a clinical standpoint? And, and to what extent is it not a disease at all? Because I, you know, like there's just so much to that. And I feel like saying either one actually definitively, now that I'm talking about it out loud, yeah. I'm like saying either one of those things definitively seems wrong, actually, like both are wrong. So I totally agree with you. And I was having this conversation with a colleague who is, I would say she would describe herself as being in the obesity space. Yeah. And we were having a conversation and she was like, you know, I am healthy. I am hazel-lined. I, I right. absolutely believe that. And I absolutely believe her. And I f- right. feel like, and she said that even like her use of the word obesity, she's like, you know, some people don't want it to use other labels. Some people don't like the term fat. Some people don't like right. obesity. And I feel like, I think that it's so important that we take an individual approach and really ask people like, what feels good to them? How do they identify? How do they feel in their body? And yeah. in terms of like, is it a disease? Is it not a disease? I, I really, I don't feel comfortable calling it a disease. I think that that is so alienating. And so it could be, it could be so alienating. It could be stigmatizing. And mm-hmm. I don't, I'm just like really in the business of people feeling like their best selves. And I think mm-hmm. that a lot of those labels just make people feel so much shame. And that's where mm-hmm. I get, I feel uncomfortable with it. But I do agree with you. I think that like, I think that obesity medicine people mm-hmm. And I think that haze people, like they see things very differently. And I think that there would, I've been, in fact, like at Fancy one year, there was like a full on. I remember this. Know, debate. It was yeah. the one that, I think it was one that we were both at. And I think it, it was, was in, in Chicago or was it, okay, it was DC. DC. That's actually okay. the only Fancy I've been to. Yeah. And it was <laughs> really interesting. It was, I thought it was, and it was Christy Harrison, who I think yeah. the world of, I think she is really incredible. I have her books on my bookshelf. I think she's amazing. And I see it. I, I feel like there are different ways. Like, I guess what I'm saying is actually, I care less about how we're labeling it. And I care more about how we're treating people. Oh, so well said. Yes, I totally agree. And I also, I also think that perhaps that it can be both, right? That it is a disease for some people and that also for other people experiencing weight gain that may be quote unquote in in a BMI chart obese can be different things, right? So that you may experience weight gain and and therefore may have a different experience with it as someone who has been in a larger body their entire life and has struggled with other health consequences as a result of that, or someone who has been in a larger body their entire life and has not suffered other other health-related consequences. And I think that's the important distinction there is that some of these things, when we talk about obesity as a disease, I think we maybe need to take a little bit more care about the idea that what we're actually talking about is not just weight, it's weight with a number of other biomarkers that indicate metabolic dysfunction. And that being a little bit more clear about when we're talking about that versus when we're not is useful. Right. Well, I think the thing is a few things. One is like, I really, I do not believe in BMI. I think it's, I mean, it was really made up as something that, um, you know, is like made up by, to to like represent white European men. And it really, and it was for insurance purposes, I think like it's not of our, yeah, yeah, of our, of our population. Like I, I, so I just, I take real issue with even using BMI as any kind of like a label. And second, I, I feel like a lot of times when people are talking about BMI or weight, 
they are making assumptions that yes that like we are meant to be thin that people are healthier when they're thin that body types are meant to be thinner that that's the ideal and i strongly disagree with that there was an excellent article last year i believe it was last year in the new york times about atypical anorexia mm, which i saw honest, that article amazing yeah, article yeah it was yeah. wonderful i've actually only published one thing and it was a case study um, about a boy who came into a clinic that I was working in. Well, actually, he mm. had had written his mom had written an email about a serious weight loss, but named his BMI, and it was at a higher mm-hmm. it was a higher number that would be categorized as obesity. And someone in the eating disorder program actually wanted to send him elsewhere. And I was on that email, and I actually said, you know what, I'd love to have him come in. Can I? I would love to see him, and I can assess and figure out where yeah. he's he should go. Good and he came in and I asked him to take his orthostatics and it turned out that his, he was extremely orthostatic and required an admission. Like I, when I called the attending on at children's where I was working at the time, I was like, I really think this person meets criteria for an admission. And they agreed and he was admitted and his heart rate went very low while he was there. In other words, he was really, really in a critical state and needed to be refed like immediately. Yeah. And like, it's so easy to look at someone and say like, oh, they're, it's ridiculous. you know, yeah, you have, we yeah. have no idea what people, what their health actually looks like, unless we really take the time to know them and understand them. And I, I just think that like that article in the New York times, I'm so appreciative of it because I flags that some people are just in larger bodies and you have no idea what their eating habits are. And if you're going to be quick to just, you know, just kind of like jump to conclusions or make assumptions yeah. based on what their size then there's so much to miss. And there are just so many people that I follow on Instagram that have such important messages around their own struggles with food and their own relationship with their body. And it would be really easy to mischaracterize them if you didn't take the time to get to know them. Mm-hmm. And and as someone in this field, I obviously like just, I really appreciate that everyone's journey is unique and we have to take the time to understand where people are coming from and and what their behaviors look like. Yeah. I love that so much. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly the point. It's like weight is one number. And sometimes it's a very irrelevant number. Sometimes it's relevant depending on the entire clinical picture, but all, I I don't know. I almost feel like all of these bio biomarkers in many ways can be extremely relevant. And sometimes they tell you nothing. Sometimes all of them tell you nothing. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's almost like, like you, you sometimes just need to hear the story and that's just as important as taking all kinds of little metrics and saying that you can write a clinical note, right? Absolutely. And also, you know, the Hayes community is very strong on the fact that like people who are fat don't just get diabetes and yes. people who are thin get diabetes. People right. in all different sizes can have high cholesterol yeah. or blood pressure. And there are so many factors that go into that. So I feel like it's just it's really complicated. And, and I think, yeah. I think it's almost like a lazy approach to say someone's fat, therefore yes. they're unhealthy. It's a really good point. I totally agree with that. I mean, that is, that's probably my biggest pet peeve is that, and I, I don't even, I don't even want to say that it's intentional laziness, I think. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, which is that I think that sometimes it's lazy and sometimes it is this ridiculous pressure for 
for time that providers feel, which is like, I've got to see a million people today. This is, here's a handout on obesity. And you don't know literally anything about the patient that you just handed that to. And that can be harmful to some people. I mean, it can, it can be really psychologically damaging. It's not to say that 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 that's true of everyone. I don't want anyone to mistake what I'm saying there. I just mean that like, you just really don't know until you actually have time for real, genuine patient care where you're actually listening to patients. Right. And if we can talk about the behaviors that is more telling than anything else. Yes. Okay. So I would be remiss not to ask you about a few behaviors. Okay. (laughs) Tell us. So like, look, when you sit down with someone who is perhaps in, in any form of recovery, maybe from just from simple, simple, (laughs) I was going to say just some simple trauma. No, it's (laughs) Not that simple. I mean, more just like if you're sitting down with someone, what what is your approach to determining what kinds of behaviors might be working for someone, what they're not, and what which ones are not, and which um which are some what are some of the types of behaviors that you're usually working on when you sit down with a new client? Yeah, well, I think I mean just coming from my lens of helping people recover from their eating disorders, like so often they come to me because they're really miserable. Like the joy is being sucked out of their life because they feel like they are so there, these behaviors are really ruining their life. And so, um, so the behaviors that I'm working on are just like, I really think about it as almost like turning down the volume. Like what can we do to make it feel less intense, less severe? So whether it's, you know, like restriction, like, so then what's like, when can you take like an extra bite of the food that you're eating? It's, I'm really all about like slow, sustainable. I really believe like, mm-hmm. um, oh my God, what's the, what's the saying? It's, um, slow and steady wins the race. That's yes. I like, <laughs> sort of like, can I just tell you that for some reason, what came into my head <laughs> Because the early bird catches the worm. So me too. And I was like, that is definitely not something that I ever say. But but slow and steady. Like, I really do believe that we're in such a, we're, you know, the whole back to like those that big thing. Like we're all about, I think, quick fixes and it should like things should shift overnight. That's not how anything works. Nothing works that way. Nothing worthwhile works that way. Exactly. It's like one foot in front of the other. Where can you make one step in the right direction. And I'm really like, that is my goal is helping people make slow, steady progress towards feeling better. But it's kind of hard to talk about behaviors, honestly, without triggering anyone. And like, I I would Uh, never want anyone to feel triggered by anything that I'm saying, but I really do believe it's about where it's, you know, the analogy I use actually is like, I'm, I'm like a real water wuss. Like if the water is cold, like I don't really want to get in it, but I have three kids. And so I need to be near the water. And so it's like, I'll like (laughs) dip my foot in and like, honestly, I'll just like sit myself on the top stair of the swimming pool. And then like, maybe with time I'll like scoot in a step. Like I just really need to let my body acclimate. And I think that when ever we're trying to adopt new behaviors, it's all about how can we slowly acclimate? How can we really get in, in ways that are meaningful and then sustainable? Yeah. I love that. I love that. All right. So we have to talk about this and I will cut it out if you don't want me to talk about this, if you don't want me to bring this up, but but you said something that was so powerful and really profound. And I just think that because this podcast has a lot of other health practitioners that that listen to this would really benefit from hearing this because frankly, it's just reassuring to know that we're not both each, each of us individually (laughs) alone in this, which is that I, I was saying to Rachel before we started recording that I feel like I have lost a lot of 
clients in the last couple of years, last year or two, to Ozempic or to other quick fixes. So just to kind of close out on the topic of Ozempic, can you just share your experience with this? Also, if you don't mind that, that, like your feelings about how this has evolved and how you have navigated working with a population that may be, you know, more eager to try Ozempic once that is presented to them in a physician's office versus what they initially came to you for. Yeah, no, I feel really comfortable talking about that because I think that if someone decides that Ozempic or any of those medications is for them, I feel like I feel like then using it as a tool to help you then do the work to better your relationship with yourself and better your relationship with food is a really important piece of that puzzle. And yeah. I, I feel like that is where I could see it for some potentially, you know, being helpful. But I just, I really feel like it's, I think it's almost like it feels like it could be a missed opportunity if someone isn't also concurrently working on their relationship with how they feel about food and how they feel about body. Because Mm. I don't know if you follow like Katie Storino or Mm. she's an amazing on Instagram. She's wonderful. And, and she talks so much about um about like I mean she wrote a book on body image and how yeah if you're not working on your relationship with your body it's really not about your body it's about so much more and I agree with that wholeheartedly and I just I really want people to take steps to accept themselves where they are yeah yeah and so you feel like you feel like this has worked for some people but it's not but is it but when someone has come to you and they're looking to help heal that relationship with their body and then they ultimately start a new medication like a GLP-1 like uh, do you feel like there's some fall like is there some drop off is there some like i don't i don't even want to necessarily say like is there is there questioning of like should i still pay for this because that that's been my experience right which is the like am i why am i still paying for this again and that is the part that i just feel like i like we can only show up and know our own value like as much as we possibly can. But but that experience, I feel like that's a more real experience that so many of us are, are going through that I worries me. You know what I mean? Because I feel like you do still need to figure out that relationship with food, with body, with all of that, even while you're like, as you mentioned, turning down the volume on certain things, like making things yeah. a little bit less scary. Maybe sometimes that medication might be helpful for those people. I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but you know, maybe that's something that that might be helpful to someone. But where, like, I guess, where is the practitioner in this from your perspective? I don't know. I feel like, I, yeah. to be honest, I'm kind of like detached from a lot of the, yeah. the practitioners. Like I'm not really part of those conversations. And I just, I obviously hope that anyone who's getting a medication is getting appropriate follow-up care and, and being, you know, got kind of like given the advice that, that this is a really good opportunity to work on your relationship with yourself and with food. Like I don't really believe medication can heal that for anyone. Totally. Totally agree. All right. So let's go to our next stop. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Bag of fun. Our next in the bag of fun today, which we have got to get to because this article came out yesterday at the time. Oh my of- gosh, what timing. What timing. And I have been dying to just kind of dish on it with another dietitian who I trust. I can't think of anyone better to do that with than you. Thank you. So let's talk about the Washington Post. 
This article came out yesterday. Practitioners will know instantly when they're listening to this, what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. And it was by Anahad O'Connor, who I really just want to say to him, first of all, like he was not on the, his byline was not on the original publication of the article, which I thought was curious because I'm like, what, which dietitian hurt you? Like what? <laughs> who hurt you? You have been coming for this profession since you were at the New York Times and now you're at the Washington Post. And like now you're continuing to just drill down on the dietetics profession. I'd love to know who hurt you in this. Okay, that's an aside. But there were three authors on on the piece. He's the only one with whom I'm familiar with. Um, with whom I'm familiar in proper English. Okay, but let's get your hot take, just top line, your thoughts on this article in the Washington Post covering dietitians not disclosing financial relationships um, with various food companies? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I feel mixed. I, I feel mixed. Yeah. I think that in our field, honestly, like there aren't so many dietitians, it feels like, that are in this sponsorship category. And honestly, maybe they are. And those are probably like not the people I follow anyway. So maybe I just wouldn't know. But yeah. I, I feel like doctors well, you're right I mean I want to I'm not going to interrupt you but I just want to say that you are correct like they only named in this article 60 not named they mentioned that there were a total of 68 dietitians that's pathetic I, I mean right. that number is pathetic when you think that there's up to 70,000 in the United States you're you picked on 68 I mean just like when we think about that compared to other healthcare practitioners or yes. other people in the space Absolutely. Like what percentage is that? That's like, a, right. like such a minute percentage. And then I think about the people that they, you know, that they quoted and like they showed the, I was reading on my phone. So I was um, clicking on all the TikToks or Instagrams that they posted. And I was like, I actually agree with what these people, these women are saying. And like, right. I, I like actually was on a segment and I basically said the same thing about the aspartame thing. And no one was paying me to say that. Exactly. And then I think about how I did a new segment on on Monday and I didn't name any brands whatsoever, but like I did buy brands at the store when I was showing nutritious swaps for certain foods. Yeah. So yeah, I kind of feel like, why are we getting picked on? Like, yes. Like I, I think it gets really icky if you're doing things that don't align with your values, but if people are making choices that align with their values and they feel good about the content that they're putting out there, I, I don't know. I agree that there is something that feels icky about taking money to promote ideas or items or brands and life is really expensive and dietetics isn't a very high paying field. Mm -hmm. So I just feel like, I don't know. It kind of feels like an unfair article. I think that's where I land. Like I I think it's unfair depiction. I totally agree. I, I mean, you know, and I've I've honestly gone back and forth on this a number of times, which I actually think probably means something good, right? Like it probably mm-hmm. means that it this has made me think in a certain way and and think in actually two <laughs> two polar opposite ways at, within the span of twenty four hours. The first way is that I completely agree with you. The second is that when I took a minute to reread it, and I just okay, listeners, just going to fill you in that I heard from uh, some additional friends, colleagues who who were like, yeah there were some lack, there was some lack of disclosure because I thought that actually perhaps some of these things were being, this was like a wrongly accused situation where I was like, mm-hmm. what? These people did disclose and all of that. And I feel like 
bottom line, you got to disclose. Like you can't, there's no skirting around right. that. Like if you are paid by a corporation, you must disclose that or an, or an organization or an entity or a not-for-profit. If you're being paid to say something, you need to disclose it. Period. Yes. Agreed. Totally exactly. Agreed. On the flip side, I completely agree with everything you're saying. So it's it's a both it's a yes and right like it's not a yeah. it's not a no but yes. It's a yes and it's like a you must disclose. But also, this is totally unfair and kind of uh, it's kind of out of left field in the sense. Well, it's not out of left field if you understand that Anahat O'Connor seems to be constantly coming for the dietetics profession. But still, you know, like I just don't I can't really wrap my head around why you would choose this profession versus some of the other influence influencers mm-hmm. online that are uncredentialed that who do not have, who are paid to do a whole bunch of other things without disclosing financial like protein interest. powders, like things that have no all the time. Like, right. It, it, I don't get that. And also a lot of the people he named are paid by the Canadian sugar right. industry, something like that. Like I thought that was really interesting for an article that was published in the Washington post <laughs> that like, that's not an accurate Thank depiction you. of, U.S. dietetics. Yes, exactly. Could not agree with that more. That's such a great point. I I also felt really strongly because I agree with you. You you mentioned saying something about aspartame on on a segment. I, yeah. I talked about it on this podcast for so like I really went into detail on the research, on the application, on the whole thing. And I'm sure that a lot of my talking points for my own not paid, completely just went on the interwebs as one does to find out the information. Yes. And and created a piece of work out of that that was not sponsored. What I hate about that is that the lack of disclosure makes me concerned that work like yours, like mine, is then then it, it sort of brings the whole entity down, right? Like it brings the whole profession down in a certain way. That's what concerns me about it, right? Is that if you do the work and you're not being compensated for it, and even if those messages align, then now that they've gone ahead and published this article, and I'm not, I'm not blaming the individuals on this. I'm saying like the article itself puts into light or calls into question the idea that, that we might have the independent thinkers, you know, and I, I really just, hate that so much. Like there's nothing that bothers me more than that. Totally. I also just want to say that I happen to think that you have a particular talent for breaking things down scientifically and making them really like palatable to people and understandable. And I agree with you. Like it's so, that's such, it's so unfair that anyone would just belittle, you know, people for sharing good information. I agree. Like there is something hard. It's hard to digest information yeah. that you know is being paid for. Yes. And yet if you give yourself a chance to familiarize yourself with the, the data enough, like you see that actually like it is founded in real information. And I say that as someone who I really don't like aspartame, like I personally don't like the flavor of it. I prefer things that are natural. I I really, I don't buy items that have aspartame in them. And yet I don't really believe like, like I, I like the studies really do show that you'd have to have upwards of like 17 of them for it to have any kind of <laughs> negative impact. Right, right. Yeah, a hundred percent. I also wonder what you think about the, um, the other thing that, I mean, and this just like, it just struck me about the article in general. It's like, it feels like two articles were smushed together a little bit. Like what, like the beginning of the article was focused on the world health organization and this, this, um, idea of, uh, dietitians not disclosing their work with American mm-hmm. beverage company that was basically sort of the counter lobby of, um, of the World Health Organization and their statements. 
The second half of the article was about was more about um, working with sugar companies and working and and like you mentioned, the Canadian Sugar Board and and also how promoting the idea. And I've seen this before, too. And it, honestly, this one drives me crazy in a different way. I wonder your take on it. Not to not to lead the witness here, listeners. <laughs> to lead the witness here, but uh, when when I see dietitians, what I think is really missing that almost like bridges the whole article together. When I see dietitians not saying this is my clinical opinion about something that's not research, I think it takes a turn, right? I because I'll give you a great example. Like I, I heard someone the other day. Speaking about actually world health. Oh my God, Rach, it just occurred to me that we both know this person. Um, <laughs> it really upset me because I was like, that's a disingenuous take from a dietitian. It's an actually disingenuous take. It's when you didn't take the time to look at the research from World Health Organization and you decided let's practice self-compassion because we didn't know until now that, that, as a, that consuming aspartame causes cancer. And I'm like, that is so fucking wrong on every level. Like everything about what you just said is wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like that's just not, that's just inaccurate. You didn't look at the actual evidence and now you're coming out on a very large platform and saying, we need to practice self-compassion because we didn't know until right now. No, no, this this topic has been around forever. And if you looked at the research, you would know that actually that's just, you're just off. Like that's just off base, you know? So yeah, that was because my- that person does does feel like aspartame is harmful. Exactly. But it's not based in research. It's, I feel like, and that's exactly yeah. the key. Those yeah. are the keywords that really are meaningful to me, which yeah. is like, I think something that would cultivate more transparency in our profession is to say, this is my clinical opinion based on the research that I've looked at. Or right. maybe if you haven't looked at research and then you can just say, this is my hot take. It's my personal opinion. It's not my opinion as a dietitian, as an yeah. evidence-based practitioner. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's- it's so tricky. I mean, it's so tricky, but it's, yeah. I mean, in general, I shy away from social media because I, and like making any kind of claim like that, like, I just, I feel like there is so much data that's ever evolving. And Mm -hmm. I think that it's important that people, and I, again, I think you do this really well, are able to really bring forth that kind of data and information in a way that is meaningful to people. And if I don't think that's one of my strong suits, like, I think I'm very good at certain things, but I don't think I'm good at like distilling data. And I think that like, I just feel like so much pressure to get it right. Every single, I don't know. I just, no, I think that's a really, I just think any, I think that anytime you're saying something kind of like broadly on social media, like you should, you should have some, some kind of data to back it up is what I'm trying to say. And I don't think that, I, I just think that's an important thing to, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I also, I, I also wonder what your take is on this this topic that kind of got brought up a little bit towards the end of the article about, um, about all about the philosophy of all foods fit, which I would argue that pretty much every single dietitian, a clinically trained dietitian in the world, would agree with, and then ultimately being paid to promote something that is less aligned with like a more nutritious pattern of eating. I hate to even say that. And I sort of just want to slap myself on the wrist. So know that I'm doing that at the same time. But mm-hmm. also I feel like it's the best way to kind of summarize what's said in the article. What yeah. Do you think about that? Yeah. I, I just, I, I didn't love that piece of it. I mean, I really, I feel like, 
I do think all food fits. And I think that wanting to raise kids who have a healthy relationship with candy, which is one of the things they can't run after. Like, it's like in the same, like, it's in the same breath. Like, I both totally agree with that. And I appreciate how it feels a little bit icky that someone was paying for that message to be said. Yes. But I still agree that like, ultimately, I want kids to have a healthy relationship with candy. I completely agree. I know. And it's, it's really like, it's like this article stumbled on exactly this, this conflict among healthcare professionals at large, right? Like, because we can agree that I, I fully agree with everything you just said, which is that, yes, introducing candy to your kids actually will cultivate healthier relationship with candy. It shouldn't be their only food. It should Correct. not be the yeah. only thing on the table. It should not be the go-to reach for option. It should be an option because we need to stop creating moral value around food in order to cultivate that healthy relationship with food. Right. Exactly. But at the same time, I'm like, would that, did that have to be the thing that you were paid for? <laughs> you know? And right. then at the same exactly. time, I also want to slap myself on the wrist for saying that because we are so vastly, deeply underpaid as a profession yeah. and judging how people make money is really not what I'm in the business to do. You know? Yeah. Like, yes. I, that's we, really well we all need yes. to eat. Right. Like, so really like, that's what I feel like was missing from the article is like that kind of sensitivity. Like perhaps someone who wrote this article, there are three, there's three bylines on the article. Could someone not have looked into how much it costs to become a dietitian? What it means to like continue with continuing education. The cost for me to just get my ass to fancy this year is offensive. It's offensive. Yeah. I don't make enough to like support yeah. that this year, right? Like it's just not, it's like I don't even consider going. Like I exactly. don't go because it's it's so right. expensive. It's really prohibitive. Right. The one time I went, it was because it was 30 it was minutes local. from my house. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. And I think that also, like I don't I'm not familiar with any of the people that were that they named, but I'd be curious to know what their other content looks like. And was this really this right. like very much in line with what they typically talk about? And just this one had like a hashtag ad or whatever, however they identified it, or I guess, or didn't identify it at times. Like right. that's what I take issue with. But yeah, I'm just like sick of being bullied as a dietitian. Like, we, <laughs> I, and, I mean, it just feels like, I, yeah, I just think that like there is, I don't know. Life is short. Let's let people like do what they need to do. And obviously like I want people to be getting good information and I want people to make choices that really serve them. And, and I guess in general, anytime you introduce a sponsorship into it, it's, it's, it's hard to know for sure if that's what's happening. And I appreciate, I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. And I think that it's okay to have a broader discourse. I just guess it wasn't kind of like so negatively spun. Yes. Well said, Rach. That is everything I wanted to say all in one perfect summary. Yes. <laughs> I love it. All right. So let's move on so that we don't depress <laughs> ourselves <laughs> and quit this profession completely. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we need something. We need something to lift us up a little bit, Rach. Totally. Yes. So here's here's what I would love to know. In practice for you, are there, besides everything we've already covered, right? What are some of the other common questions? Like what's a question that you get most often, most frequently? What are some of the themes that you've seen recently? And I say recently because I'm thinking like in the last couple of years, how have changes in dietary patterns or um, people's own relationships with food, how has that evolved, if at all, in the last couple of years? And, And especially coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, I, that's that's such a good question. And I wonder, I, I don't think that I would say that I've watched them evolve. I think that as I get 
deeper and deeper into the world of like eating disorders and recovery and intuitive eating and healing our relationship with food and body, I think that the thing that I'm struck by the most is how hard it is for people to feel enough and enough in their bodies, enough, you know, like, I mean, I really do think about like body acceptance as being the primary thing that I hear about. And really, um, I really, I wish, I like wish there was a pill for that. You know, like that yeah. would just, it's just That'd be like, an amazing medication. Yeah. Much. yeah. Yeah. That would be like, just like self-acceptance. That would be yeah. so awesome. And it's not lost on me how hard that is to achieve in this world. I actually just finished today listening to an amazing book. It's by Cole Kasdan. It's What's Eating Us. It's mm-hmm. excellent. I listened to it and I recommend it because she's an awesome, it, it's it's the author and she narrates it and it's, it's so that. great. And And it's just like, she really highlights just how challenging it is to navigate this world and have a healthy relationship with food and body. Mm. And so I think that that to me is like the thing that feels, I find myself thinking, I find myself thinking about it the most because it's really about how do we help people feel like they're enough and how do we help people feel more accepted? And I think, I mean, I think about that, obviously I'm a dietitian, so I think about that in terms of people's size, but I obviously also think about in terms of their identities, their gender, their race, their privilege, their socioeconomic status. Like I just, I really think about how do we help people feel like they're enough regardless of their situation. Do you think that any of that has changed at all with, with the pandemic as a variable? Like has that, has that gotten, has that made things worse a little bit? Or I think it- so. I think it made things worse. I think that, I just think that um, like, I don't know if we want to call it like self-loathing or mm. just time to ruminate on these topics or a preoccupation with food and body. Like, I think that just loneliness really breeds that. And I feel like yeah. the pandemic was really lonely for a lot of people and isolating. And it took away a lot of the normal daily activities that so many of us are used to. So I think that that definitely exacerbated a lot of those symptoms. Mm. That's such an interesting, yeah, it's such an interesting point. I think that's a really, really important one, what you said about loneliness. I mean, yeah. it's really like ultimately the the real, the number one public health problem of our time. And yet the more you see private interest, public interest, like try to fix it, quote unquote, the more yeah. it just gets worse, right? Like there's there's so many virtual communities and join our virtual community. <laughs> yeah. That just makes me, makes my skin yeah. crawl at this point. Um but it's really an interesting one and such an important one to call out. Cause I feel like even just knowing that, that there's so much loneliness out there might just be the most helpful thing to just say and, and just acknowledge, you know? Yeah, I think so. And also, you know, back to like the conversation about like people talking about BMI or naming, you know, people in larger bodies having, being unhealthy. Like actually the research really shows us, I, I believe it's Harvard that came out with a study recently that said that actually the best indication for people living the longest is their relationships. Yeah. Yes. And I love that study. I think it's really Mm -hmm. such an important one. It really validates so much of what we see in clinical care in practice. Like there's just so much to know about that, you know? Yeah. What, what else? Like if you, if you were to give us I love your example. I'm just I'm just trying to get out your another example of this and it can be a happier one. Okay. So I'll just, I'll just say what I'm looking for. <laughs> I'll okay. say what I'm looking for up front, Rach. 
which is that I love your example of the case study that you mentioned at the beginning that you that you ultimately wound up publishing about, which I think is such an important example for people to hear, right? That your mm-hmm. size is is not the picture. It's it's really only one component of things, if at all, right. and it may not be relevant to things. What can you give us another example of something that you've seen more recently where you where you feel like this is something where the the sort of my work as a practitioner of nutrition and mental health counseling was tremendously impactful because I know how impactful you are. And I feel like we need our audience to know Mm. also, Uh, they probably know by now, you know, just in case. Thank you. Yeah. I, yes, absolutely. Thankfully that is definitely part of my reality in this, in this realm. And I feel like, um, you know, I think that's just like in, even in the small wins of someone like going on vacation and like yeah. feeling, feeling like fabulous in their clothing and yes. feeling like they could be more present or, you know, even just like a, one of my clients just told me about a food tasting that she went to for her wedding and oh. knowing that she's going to have a wedding and be like more present and like nothing fills me with more joy than someone showing yeah. up and really being like their best self and feeling and just feeling like truly present. I think that that is so exciting. And I have to say that, you know, as bleak as it can all feel sometimes, like I do see people get better. I, I, I see people like discharge from treatment. I see people move on and do so many important, meaningful things with their time and energy. And like, that is truly the best part of this. And I, I hold so much hope that every one of my clients will get to that place. Can I back us up just for a second and ask Mm -hmm. what, because I was there for it, but I feel like our listeners do need to hear it is what, what brought you into this, um, your master's program that, Mm -hmm. that what was sort of the catalyst of you wanting to pursue a master's in mental health counseling? So I was at Mount Sinai and really enjoying my work there. And I worked at the time, I guess I was infectious disease and I covered the VIP unit, which I had a great time with. And then I had also been doing some counseling on the side and I just remember thinking that like I I had at the time I did meal plans and I was definitely more weight loss oriented and realizing that basically like I could I could go on and on and tell people about like healthy foods to stock in their refrigerator so they could binge on them. But I realized I really wanted to be able to dig deeper and understand what was happening emotionally that was causing them to binge in the first place or restrict. And and anyway, I just really, I found myself with this opportunity to go to NYU and I started taking classes slowly and just really loved it. And it felt so relevant to the work that I was doing. So I just feel so fortunate to have a skill set that marries, you know, like addressing the underlying emotional issues and then also helping people with the nutrition piece because it feels like it's just a more kind of um, encompassing approach. And and I just, it feels so exciting that like I get to work one-on-one with people and help them feel better in their relationship with themselves. Love that. All right. So I've got to let you go. I know you actually do have clients coming up quite soon. So we have to get Rachel moving. So you've got to answer our last question here on this podcast, which is what is the most irritating, annoying thing that you have seen in the wellness, quote unquote, wellness (laughs) industry space, online space. Mm -hmm. God, There are so many, but I think just in line with the conversation that we've been having, I think I'm going to go with just 
judgment, like people being judgmental. I think in general, there are so many, I feel like even in within dietetics with, within different, you know, discipline, disciplines, I just feel like people, you know, Ozempic, not Ozempic. I think that we all need to be more introspective and think about what, what is best for our clients, what is best for us, how we can all work together and collaborate. And, and so, yeah, I'm going to go with just kind of like the judgment that exists in the wellness space. You heard it here first people, Rachel Englehart, less judgment. (laughs) Rachel, where can people find you and learn more about you? Um, my website is renutritiondc.com and my Instagram is Rachel Englehart. That's R-E-C-H-E-L-E-N-G-E-L-H-A-R-T. You're the best. Thank you, Rach. You're the best. Thank you so much for having me. I love this. Thanks so much for listening to The Business of Wellness. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Remember that advice provided on this podcast is based on my application of research and practice as a registered dietitian and should not replace medical advice provided by your physician. If you like what you're listening to, please follow the show, leave a five-star rating, and share something you love from today's episode by leaving a review. This podcast only grows with your support. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it far and wide, it may be the one thing someone needs to hear to start building that roadmap today to secure a healthier, happier future. That's it for now. So until next time, cheers.